go to Matthew chapter number 22 this morning. As you turn to Matthew 22, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to softball you a question. It's real easy. This is like the easiest answer in the world. Who is the most significant person in the history of the world? That was, that was bad, actually. That was, that was terrible. Right, let's try that again. Who's the, who's the most significant person in the history of the world? Jesus is. You say, oh, you say that because you're a pastor, because, because you're a Christian guy. No, that's, that's just the truth. There's more songs sung to Jesus. There's more books written about Jesus. There's more paintings painted of Jesus than anyone in the history of the world. Billions of people claim to be followers of Jesus. We divide time by Jesus' life. We have B.C., before Christ. We have A.D., which is Anno Domini, which is in the year of our Lord. We divide time by his life. All of our big holidays are about Jesus, Christmas, Easter, celebrating his birth, celebrating his death and resurrection. Jesus is the most significant person to ever live in the history of the world. Furthermore, I would ask you this question. What's the most significant book in the history of the world? The Bible. Once again, not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a Christian, but the Bible's been translated into more languages than any book ever. And it will continue to be. The Tiali people will get the Bible in their language before too long. It's the bestseller of all time, all the time. The New York, the New York Times bestselling list j doesn't even put the Bible on the top of the list every week because it's just known the Bible's at the top of the list every week. The, the Bible is the bestseller week in and week out. And the language of this book, even if you're not Christian, the language has shaped our culture and, and how we think and how we talk. If someone does a good deed or they help somebody out, we call them a good. If someone is a son who walks away from mom and dad, we call them a prodigal. That's all language of the Bible. So what you have in Matthew 22, and the reason I say that is this, you have the most significant man who ever lived taking the most significant book that was ever written, and he's going to tell you what the most significant portion of that book is. That's significant. Like, that's really cool. My, my, like if, if I'm reading this section, my ears are up, I'm on the edge of my seat, I want to know what Jesus has to say. And here it is, Matthew 22, verse number 35. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him. So he's trying to trick him up. He's trying to uh, get him to stumble, saying to Jesus, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus, this is the big book. Just bottom line it for me, okay? You're the most significant man who ever lived. You take the most significant book that's ever written and tell me what is the most significant portion of this book. Jesus said unto him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. So Jesus quotes to him the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. This is something that a Jewish child would have learned very early on and would have repeated daily, maybe similar to our Pledge of Allegiance that they would say at the beginning of a day in school or something like that. Uh, he quotes the Shema, but then he adds to it. He wasn't asked this question, but he adds to it. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus says loving relationship with God, first. Loving relationship with your neighbor, second. Now the Bible is clear, and Jesus will go on to say, that there really are no exclusions to the term neighbor. That neighbor is the person living next to you, and neighbor is the person that you meet just one time in passing. Neighbor is everybody. But common sense would teach us that certainly those living closest to us would be our neighbor's. And I would contend this morning that your first neighbor is those who live in closest proximity to you and those that you have the most opportunity to live this command out with on a day-to-day -day basis. Your first neighbor is that of your family. 
Is that of your spouse and your children, those that are living next to you day in and day out that you get the opportunity to live the second greatest commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, out. So as, as such, loving God is first, obviously, but loving your neighbor, especially your family, would be next in line. And I want to launch from this passage and give you some other verses here this morning to help you to make this choice. And the choice is this, I choose to place my family first. We're nearing the end of this series, 10 choices. This is our seventh choice. This is really the first choice that has to do with priorities. And I want you to understand that our our highest priority after God himself should be that of placing our family first. Well, today's decision or choice is a decision of priority. Proverbs 4 tells us to ponder the path of our feet and let all our ways be established. What that verse is saying is think about your life. Think about where your choices are taking you. Let your ways be sure. Decide beforehand what is important. Consider it, ponder it, think about it. And this sermon is intended to help you think about what is important and to align your heart and your mind with what is important and even give you, give you some, some practical ways to live this out on a day-to-day basis. And I can promise you that this one sermon will not change your family I do not have any magic pixie dust to throw on you this morning and to have you walk out of here an altogether different family than when you walked in. Like that, it's not going to happen. But this one sermon could change the direction of your family for forever if you will decide to place your family first and to prioritize them as they need to be. And I'm, it's going to be very simple this morning. It's, it's very simple. There's something I want you to know, and then there's a question I want you to ask. It's that simple. Here's what I want you to know. There's always a gap between the ideal and the real. That seems like a strange place to start, but it'll make sense as we get going. There's always a gap between the ideal and the real. So I'm going to summarize in about five minutes the Bible's teaching on family for you. I'm going to try to give you the ideal picture of what family should look like. I could say a lot more than than five minutes will allow, but I'll give it to you in in a nutshell. Here's what the Bible teaches on family. Children are to do this. According to Ephesians 6, children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. All the parents in the room smiled real big, right? God's on our side on this one. Yes, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Children are instructed to obey their parental authority. If they don't learn to obey their parental authority, there's a good chance that they'll struggle to obey any authority at all, and they're instructed to obey and to honor their parents always. Wives have this instruction. Ephesians 5 tells us, and Colossians 3 tells us, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. There's a lot of people that would like to, you know, dumb that one down or dub that as regressive. And I actually just recently, a couple months ago, preached an, an entire sermon on this topic when we got to Colossians 3 on Sunday nights. We've been working through Colossians, and we got to that passage and preached a whole sermon on that. And a guy speaking for 40 minutes on wives submitting to their husbands, what could go wrong there, right? Uh, but if you, if you want more information, I'll email you the sermon, and you can listen to it on your own. I don't have time to go in depth here, but uh, this, if you feel like this is antiquated, if you feel like this will zap a woman of all her power, if you feel like somehow the, the picture you have is, is a, a dictator of a man sitting there with a beer in his hand and just bossing his wife around all the time and she's just taking the brunt of it, then, then really you fail to understand what this is talking about. This is a life-giving principle properly understood and applied. This is a beautiful thing. It's a call for a wife to recognize and respond to the authority of the husband and to willingly place herself under that authority and say, 
you're my man, lead me, I'm on your team, let's go, let's do life together. So wives are called to submit, wives are called in Ephesians 5 to see that she reverence her husband, or you could just say it this way, send some respect his way. Uh, Men men crave respect, and so the, the wives are instructed to send respect his way. Husbands have this instruction, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. That's Colossians 3, to love them, to not be bitter against them. First Peter tells husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Be considerate of them. Think about them. Know them. Give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not, not hindered. Now we take this instruction for husbands for granted, that a husband is to love, to cherish, to care for his wife, to be considerate of his wife, and, and he's supposed to, you know, buy her flowers or take her on dates or give her words of affirmation. But in the first century, this instruction was revolutionary. Nowadays we think, man, what a, what a schmuck if a guy doesn't take care of his wife and want to love her and want to care for her. But in the first century, this, this was an absolute game changer for a guy to get instruction to say love her and not be angry with her and think of her and be considerate of her you mean the the one that my parents like like bartered for when I was 10 years old and said that you're going to marry her in four years from now like the I, I wanted to marry the other one but we didn't have enough dowry for her all we had was a cow so we found the guy with three daughters and the middle one was definitely not getting married anytime soon so my parents just worked out a deal and said here's your wife I'm, you know, no one was considered of me in this process. I'm supposed to be considered of her. I'm supposed to love her and cherish her. This was revolutionary instruction that a man was to love and to cherish and to be considerate of his wife. Fathers have this instruction. Uh, Colossians 3, fathers, provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. Dads, don't exasperate your kids. Don't overcorrect them. Don't be unreasonable with your demands. Don't treat them like your property or like an animal. Don't, uh, don't, don't do that. Care for them. Nurture them. Love them. Be careful not to wound their spirit. I'm not sure how or why exactly this all works, but I know it's true that typically speaking, mom's words are about a 25-pound weight that you'll put on a kid. Dad's words are about a 500-pound weight that you'll put on a kid. And, and dads are, are instructed not to irritate or to provoke their children to anger. And here's the, here's the ideal family from Scripture. Here's the ideal family. Wives, submit and respect your husbands. Husbands, love and be considerate of your wives. Children, obey and honor your parents. Fathers, don't irritate your kids. Now, there's a little bit more than that in the Bible, but that's about the sum total of the biblical instruction on what a family is supposed to be and the specific instructions that we have. Now, that is very idealistic, right? That, that idea of uh, the husband is constantly loving and caring and nurturing and being considerate of and trying to put his wife first and, and the wife is recognizing and sending respect his way and, and, and I'll gladly be on your team and, and uh, yeah, let's do this, babe, and I submit to you and the, and the children just, uh, yeah, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I'd be glad to with a smile and they're just obeying and they're honoring and, and, and the fathers are not heavy-handed and they don't get angry and they're not, they're not, you know, they're not causing their children to be discouraged. That, that idea is very idealistic. There is, <laughs> I know you didn't come from an ideal family that lived that out all the time, nor if you're married and you have children, have you created an ideal family where you live that, all the, where you live that out all the time, right? There's ideal, and then there's real, and there's a gap in between those two. There is what it's supposed to be like, and what it actually is in real time over here, and then there's a gap, and there's a tension in between those two that, that we haven't, the, the ideal has not materialized. 
And what you find, that what the Bible does and what Jesus does so well, is that he will give the ideal, he will raise the standard, he will raise the bar, he will tell how things are supposed to look like and how they're supposed to work, while at the same time he won't condemn, but he'll offer grace to those who fall short of the ideal. So you would find in Jesus' ministry that there's a constant, the kingdom of heaven is light, the kingdom of heaven is light, the kingdom of heaven is light, and he tries to teach, here's what it is, he tries to elevate it, he tries to raise the standard. You find, I could give you a million examples of this, but you would find this in the case where they question Jesus about adultery, and they ask Jesus, you know, what, what's all this about? And, and they knew what adultery was, where a man or a woman takes their body and commits adultery, and Jesus says, well, it's actually more than that. If, if, you've, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And what Jesus does is he raises the bar, and in so doing, he makes an adulterer out of every man in his audience. And says, here's what it actually is. Okay, Jesus, now what are you going to do to all the adulterers in the world? Well, I'm going to die for them, and I'm going to forgive them, and I'm going to offer grace to them, and I'm going to try to help them realize that, that here's what you should aim for. But there's, there's this tension in his ministry where here's the ideal I want you to aim for, but at the same time, I'm going to offer you grace and forgiveness. I'm going to even die for the sins. This is, this is, this is actually very important because if you eliminate one or the other, you will, you'll become very disfigured. If you eliminate all of the grace and all of the acceptance and all the forgiveness just to raise the standard and just have the ideal that you're pushing for all the time, then you'll have no grace in your life. If you just have all grace and all forgiveness and all acceptance, but you have no standard, then that, that's going to be to your detriment as well. You need both, and there's a tension there. And what you find in Jesus' ministry is that he raises the standard, and when he raises the standard, the grace actually gets deeper. You understand how messed up you really are. You understand how deep of a need you actually have. And the grace gets deeper. The forgiveness gets richer. The inclusion gets broader because he's doing this. And you find in family that there is ideal that we want to strive for and we want to aim for and we want to prioritize and we want to push towards. But then there's real. And I think this is important to understand as we work through this this morning. Because what we'll do is if if we lose sight of the ideal, we'll, we'll tend to forgive ourselves a little bit and let ourselves off the hook a little bit, and we'll tend to say, well, okay, I'm just, I'm fine with how the real is. I don't really need to pursue the ideal. This is just, my parents were this way. I was this way. I can't help it. I'm a sinner. I have a problem, whatever it may be. And all of a sudden, we, we begin to excuse away us falling short of the mark of how family actually should be. And the question is, are we willing to embrace an ideal that's far from reality in our current family? The ideal probably for each and every one of our families is far from reality. But are we willing to embrace that or will we lose sight of that so that we can feel better about where we actually are? And you have to be willing to, to say, okay, I'm going to embrace an ideal that is not real life for my family. For some of us even, it's, it's never going to be real life. For, for some in this room, no doubt, the ship has sailed, the dreams are shattered, the, the damage is irreversible, there's nothing I can do. And I hate when you talk about marriage or family, or these sorts of things, it, it bugs me. And part of today's sermon is trying to help you understand that, that even there, there's grace, there's Jesus reaching out, there's him wanting to help, there's him wanting to forgive. You find that the Samaritan woman who has four wrecked marriages and she's working on her fifth, that there's grace and love there and Jesus wants to help her. 
You find the woman caught in adultery that she's thrown before Jesus and he doesn't pick up stones and start to stone her, but he, he wants to help her and to love her. So you have to understand that for yourself, but you can't lose sight of the ideal, even if you feel like you'll never reach it. Even if you know deep down that's impossible, I'm never getting there. I'm an adult child and there's too much damage between me and my parents. There's too much damage between me and my siblings. There's, there's too much there. Even if you feel it's never there, you can't lose sight of that and dumb it down to where you start to feel better about where you actually are. That, well, you know, that unconditional love stuff and that constantly forgiving stuff and that man, you know, really loving and really caring and that woman submitting and, and the, you know, nurturing your kids and God doesn't, you know, he doesn't want me to get divorced and all that sort of stuff, you know, that, that works for some people, Pastor, but come on, like that's a grandma's version of family, right? Like we're 21st century, we're Americans, like that can't, no, 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 no. What you're doing is losing sight of the ideal so that you can start to feel a little bit better about our real. And none of us feel that great about our real. Can we just be honest? Every family is dysfunctional. Mommy, daddy, uh, mommy center, daddy center come together and make baby centers and it's messed up. Families are, they're all dysfunctional. Even the ones that you have up on the pedestal and you think are great. Every family is dysfunctional to some degree, but we pursue what the Bible says. One author said it this way. He said, many people get married for an ideal, then that turns to an ordeal, and then they want a new deal. And that's, that is true sometimes. But this thought, this idea is meant to work against the danger that you would face in any any sermon that's about family and prioritizing it and pursuing it and working towards it, the danger that we face is that, you know, oh, it's pie in the sky, it's too far off, I can't reach that. That's for someone else, so I will refuse to engage with this, I will refuse to make the decision. I don't need to make the decision because I feel like I can't get there, I feel like it's been too late, and, and then I'm on, you know, round two or round three or round four, and I, I can't get there yet. No, 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 no. All of us fix our gaze on what is ideal, what should be, what, what the Bible wants to be, and, and pursue that. Even if you know you'll fully never attain it, you still pursue that. And can we bring ourselves to say, okay, here's what family looks like, and that's what I want to pursue, even if I feel a million miles from that. I'm still going to make that the North Star. I'm still going to let the Bible guide me. I'm still going to allow it to have some control and sway. And I'm going to pursue what a family should be. Or will I change the rules so that I feel better about where I am? And you, you can't change the rules. You, you don't, as a Christian, you don't have the permission, nor the margin, nor the luxury to be able to change the rules to feel better about yourself. You have to, you have to keep the ideal in sight. You know, pastor, that's pursuing the ideal and doing that like relentlessly and putting that as a first priority. That's hard. Uh, yes and no. Is, is, is it going to take dedication? Is it going to take constantly putting that at the top of your priority list and moving it up to the top over and over and over and over again? Yes, absolutely. But it's something that can be done. You know, birthing a baby is hard. Quitting meth is hard. Getting home at five o'clock and engaging with your families for four hours before they go to bed is not that hard. And I'm preaching to myself here, okay? <laughs> I'm preaching to myself. This, this is something that we let ourselves off the hook of very, very easily and very quickly. And we tend, to, we, we tend to just give ourselves the lamest excuses and just stop pursuing and to stop prioritizing. Um, I'm, just, I'm just trying to survive and keep my head above water. There's, there's, there's so much going on. You know, you're right. So just stop. Just stop trying to survive. 
stop all the things that are keeping you too busy and, and eliminating and distracting you from your, fam for your family and prioritizing them first and, and switch. Well, that means I, I may have to change careers. Okay. Well, if I change careers, I'm going I'm to have to sell the boat. I'm going to have to downsize the house. And I'm going to have like two and a half weeks of vacation instead of four weeks vacation. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't live on two and a half weeks of vacation. Really? Like, is, 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 that, is, is that our list of excuses? That we're going to do this to, to the detriment of our own family, what, that, what we're saying is I'm not choosing to prioritize. I'm not choosing to place them first. You may be on kind of the opposite end of things where you're just now trying to pursue and work towards. I have a young family, and we're just kind of in that mode right now where we're, we're pursuing early and young and trying to be wise with our finances and money, those sorts of things. But you can find yourself caught in a trap of, well, it's my first few years in my career, and, and I, need to, I need to say yes to everything. I need to take on every commitment. I need to, I mean, I need to prove myself as a company man so I can advance, so that I can better myself. And, and so I, I just, just for a few years, Years, I'll be okay and I'll do this and I'll pursue this and my family will be on the sidelines and in the margins a little bit but I'll, I'll get back around to them eventually we, if we're not careful we can tell ourselves well I mean I wanted to pay the house off before I was 35 and to do that I have to work at least I've done the math 10 hours of overtime a week if I do that consistently every week by the time I'm 35 I'll have enough money to pay the principal down I'll pay the house off by I'm 35 that's my goal but change your goal but change the goal. If that, if that is to the neglect and the detriment of your family, then alter it and choose to place them first. And th there are so many things that we do that we wiggle out of this commitment, this priority, and we don't end up loving our family first and placing them first. Sometimes we do it even with our kids, that we want something better for them than what we had, so we obligate them and ourselves to a schedule that's absolutely atrocious because we're, we're trying to somehow improve, improve their lives. That, you know, we're going to soccer practice, and then we're going to taekwondo kicking practice, and we're going to basketball practice, and we're going to piano practice, and you're just running around all over the place with no family time. Because, I mean, you know, to survive in the world today, you have to be a soccer dribbling, karate kicking, basketball shooting, piano playing genius, so I need my kids to do all this stuff. Maybe just stop one, or two, or three, or all of them. Maybe there's, there's, I could go on and on. There's a lot that we do to, to excuse ourselves away from this. And the point is this. Don't know the ideal. Know the priority that this needs. To, we all know this and just deep down inside. I think even Christian people, non-Christian people understand this. But this, this is your first neighbor to love. This is who you need to put first. So don't excuse it away. There's a tension between the real and the ideal. Don't lessen that tension. Keep it and keep working at it. Even if you feel like you're never going to get there, keep working at it. Secondly, here's something to ask. This is maybe the most pragmatic point I've ever had in a sermon in my life, but it's, it's deeply scriptural. There's something you got to know, okay? The, what you got to know is that there's ideal and there's real and there's a gap in between, but you need to keep pursuing that ideal. You need to make, make that your priority over and over and over and over again. Here's something to ask, and this would help your family immensely if you could just take this out this morning. What can I do to help you? You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean Ephesians 5.21. Here's Ephesians 5.21. This is the verse that precedes the greatest instruction on family in all of the Bible, in my opinion. It doesn't end and say, this is the greatest instruction of family. I just think it is. Ephesians 5 and then into Ephesians 6. Colossians 3 is a close runner-up, but Ephesians 5 and 6 is the best instruction on marriage and parenting and family that you could find compressed in all the Bible. 
In the verse that precedes all of that instruction is Ephesians 5, verse 21. It's a very simple verse, but it's one that we need to understand. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. What Paul does is he gives us this principle, submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God, and then he's going to spell that out. So wives do this, and, and husbands do this, and fathers do this, and children do this, and he's going to go, et cetera, et cetera, working through the family unit on how that should work. But he starts with this big overarching principle that we submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. And the, in the fear of God is really, really important. Not in the fear of, or you could say in the reverence of, or respect of each other, but in reverence and respect to God. Because if you're, if you're serving your family and trying to help them out of reverence or respect for them, that will, that will fade away eventually. Because all of us have moments, probably more than we want to admit, where we really aren't that respectable, we're really not that worthy to submit to or to serve in the first place. But we do this in the reverence or fear of God. It's a principle of mutual submission. This is, I, I tried to, to ask myself over and over again, how can I take this and not just make it a parenting sermon today? How can I make this applicable to, to the whole family? And I think that the Bible does it for us in this verse that the principle of mutual submission is for all of us that I'm going to take my power, my assets, my time, my energy, and I'm going to leverage that for your benefit. I'm going to take what I have and I'm going to use that to help you. That whether you're a father or a mother or a brother or a sister or a child or a parent or a stepsister or a grandparent, it doesn't matter. That I am going to look for ways to get up under your burden for the sake of Christ, first of all, but I'm doing this to an effort to help you. Because this is, we do this out of reverence for Christ because this is what Christ did for us, did he not? He got up under our biggest burden that we could not take care of ourselves, our sin problem, with unrelenting guilt and eternal damnation. He gets up under that burden and chooses to serve us and to die for us and for our sins, is buried and raises from the dead in an effort to help us and to offer us salvation. Christ does this for us, and because he's done this for us, as Christ followers now, we want to do this for other people. And Paul applies this principle directly to the family right after this. Submit yourselves one to another in the Lord. And if he didn't put anything in family, you would just think it was broadly for everybody. And it is to a degree. But then he begins to apply it directly to family. And says, here's the principle of mutual submission. I want you to help. I want you to communicate this message. I'm here for you. I want to help you. I want, I want to leverage who I am for your benefit. And the question that mutual submission begs us to ask is the question, what can I do to help you? That's a practical way to live that verse out. What can I do to help you? Let's practice that, okay? Let, we're gonna, I'm going to count to three, and we're going to practice this question. I just want it to roll off your tongue to see how easy it is to ask this. You can ask it to your, to your spouse, to your children, to your, to your grandparents. It's, it's easy, all right? Ready? One, two, three. What can I do to help you? Yeah, it was good. You one more time? One, two, three. What can I do to help you? If you would consistently ask, if I would learn to live my own sermons and consistently ask this, this would change your family dynamic drastically. If you would make it your goal to ask every single person living in your home on a daily basis, what can I do to help you? I promise you, that will be a game changer.
you will be living out, practically speaking, you will be living out the principle of mutual submission that I'm submitting myself to you. I'm leveraging me for you. I'm trying to help you. You will, in a tangible way, be living that out on a day-to-day basis. If you are a, we have 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, you know, senior hires in here, even some, some single college, college age kids, if you would go home and you would ask your parents this question, mom, dad, what can I do to help you? After they pick themselves up off the floor, <laughs> you would have so much cred with them, it'd be out of control. You say, well, they know I'm just asking it because I heard a sermon today. I did it. I, it'll still work, I promise. It'll work better two weeks from now when they forgot the sermon. But I promise you, it'll still work. You get home from school, and before you get busy with schoolwork, let's be honest, it's probably not even that much schoolwork, you know, video games or Facebook or whatever you're doing. Before you get busy with all that, Mom, what can I do to help you? Dad, what can I do to help you? After they have a seizure, they will thank you and they will love you. They will help you. You want extra points? Ask it in front of their friends. When they, I promise you. They have friends over. They have neighbors over. They're talking in the yard with the neighbors and you walk up. Hey, dad, is there anything I can do to help you? You will, <laughs> your life will never be the same. I promise you. They, they won't even know what to say. Like before they even know what to say to you, you'll be gone with the credit for asking it. And their, and their friends will look at them like, teach us. Like what did you, Obi-Wan, help us. What did you, how, oh, we, we don't know how you did that. Like this would be a game changer. If you as a young person, if you as a 13-year-old asked your parents on a consistent basis, what can I do to help you? If you as a, as a parent Ask your kids this, it will go a long way. We have little ones right now. We have a four-year-old, two-year-old, and an almost one-year-old. We one next month. Parenting can get real negative real fast. You are instructing, 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 correcting, 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 looking for teachable moments, coaching, whatever you want to call it. But it can get so negative so fast. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. That's a, that's a, that's a true verse. But... If you're not careful, it can be all correction, all correction, all correction, all correction. And all of a sudden, the air that your family starts to breathe is just that of, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, fix this, fix that, do this, do that, then do it right. All of a sudden, that's all of the air that they can breathe. And if you would just once a day, and your kids have to be a little bit older. If I ask my one-year-old this right now, he's just going to look at me and be like, I have no idea what you're saying. But as your kids get to be four, five even, six, seven, if you would just look your kids in the eyes and ask them, what can I do to help you? That would communicate to them, I am wanting to help. I'm, I'm wanting to offer you something. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. That would, go, that would go so far with your kids. If you as a wife asked your husband this question, what can I do to help you? It'd mean a ton. It would communicate to him, I know you carry a burden. I know you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. I know that there's a lot going on. I know there's so many stress factors. But what can I do to help you? If, if, you're, if your man heard this, if he heard, and this communicates, a, a, I trust you to conquer the world for our family, and I'm on your team, and what can I do to help you? How can I assist? I can promise you that will energize your man like you would not believe. Even husbands, if you will ask this to, to your kids or to, to, your, to your wife, if, if you're anything like me, your wife 
or your kids can almost become scared of asking you for something. I didn't ask my wife if I could share this, but I think she'd be okay because it's self-condemnation and to her credit. But they can almost become scared of asking you something because as soon as they ask something, they can feel the resistance. You, you may not say, oh, but I have so much going on in my schedule, so important, and I just, I have too much, and no, I won't help you. But and they can ask you to do something. Hey, could, could we carve out some time for, could we prioritize this, or could, we, could you pick up from the store, whatever it may be. They ask you to do something, and immediately they feel the resistance of my schedule and my priorities and how busy I am and what I have to do. And if, and if you would just initiate and ask, what can I do to help you? It will open up those doors. There are probably plenty of things that, th that they want to ask that, that they don't even feel comfortable asking because of the persona that at least I know I do sometimes give off this vibe and it makes it difficult. It will begin to open up those doors and help you understand this principle that you submit yourselves to each other and you help each other and your family will begin to grow because of it. When you, when you ask this, you are... You're building the bridge, practically speaking, to mutual submission. Now, I'll give you this in closing. Here's why we don't want to ask this or why we may be resistant to asking this. The bottom line is fear. Is it fear of what? Fear that someone will actually take us up on our offer, <laughs> right? That's our, that's our only hesitancy. Like, great idea. But I fear that if I'm a kid and I ask my parents, what can I do to help? I will be pulling weeds, washing the car, vacuuming the carpet. I've, you know, I'll be doing all these, all these tasks for, for my parents. I'm scared that if I ask my wife, you know, she's going to pull out her list and just, you know, yes. Is that your Bible? No, that's my list. I've been waiting 15 years for you to ask. So just start, start in Genesis and keep reading. You know, there's a ton in there. We're scared that there's, there's going to be, there's, there's going to be an actual answer. And that means that I'm going to have to sidestep my own priorities, my own to-do list, what, what I had planned for my day, and I'm going to have to engage with what they want. They're going to pull me off my path and onto their path. They're going to take me away from, from all that I have to do. Suddenly, I won't be first anymore, really, is what we're saying. I, I won't have my little agenda cooking all the time. And this is why Ephesians 5.21 is so important that it includes that we do this out of reverence for Jesus, Jesus who served us to the tune of it costing him his life, I can all but guarantee what your kids or spouse asks of you will not cost you your life. He serves us to that extent and now asks us to be his followers. And we now have the responsibility and the privilege to come alongside those that are most important in our lives, who we need to place a premium on and value the most, our family, and say, how can I serve you? What can I do to help you? What can I do to see our family go further faster? See, my to-do list won't get done. Your to-do list isn't going to get done anyway. <laughs> Anyone else never cross off their whole to-do list and it just keeps growing? You cross one thing out and add three things to it? It's not going to get done anyway. So put on your to-do list to prioritize your family and just get that one done. This is, this is something that you want to do over and over and over. And you want to live this out. This is what Jesus did for you. And this is a way. There's more than ways in this. But this is a very biblical and practical way to say, I choose to place my family first. And I'm just, I'm just going to give mental assent to that. I'm not going to tip my hat to that. I'm actually going to do something with it tangibly, really.
I'm, I'm going to try to engage and say, hey, babe, hey, son, come here. What can I do to help you? How can I serve our family? I know each and every one of you want a great family. Deep down inside, we all do. This is, this is what makes for great family. Saying, I love you, and I love you first, and I'm gonna put you first, and as such, I'll submit myself to you, and I will serve you, and I will do my best to communicate in a real way, in a practical way, that you're first, and you're my priority, and I'm gonna serve you with all that I have. And if you can do this, I can promise you your family will be better because of it.